Good. All right. If we can pull back together, we have a special treat for you. Uh, the special treat is that uh, we have a, a, uh, an intern preaching for us, our very own Ryan Sue. Please welcome Ryan Sue, everybody. Say hello to him. Ryan is one of our interns going through seminary training, uh, feeling the call to be perhaps a, a professor, perhaps a teacher, perhaps a pastor. We're trying to help him discern that call, and he has a great word from us from Isaiah 42 as we continue our series on Isaiah 42. And now here to read the scriptures that we will be reflecting upon through Ryan is Nardine on video. Our reading today is from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 8. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it was 2018, and a global pandemic was the furthest thing from anyone's mind, but I was unhappy. In fact, I was more than unhappy. I was anxious and disillusioned. I had just finished watching Marvel's Avengers Infinity War, and I was shocked and stunned. Uh, spoiler alert, Thanos got his hands on all five Infinity Stones, and despite the best efforts of our Avengers, with a snap of his fingers, he wiped out half of the life in the universe, including a number of our favorite superheroes. And I remember sitting in the theater at the end of the movie thinking, what? That's how it ends? No way. I felt this deep, unsettling angst about how are they going to fix this? How are the Avengers going to make things right after everything has gone wrong and their worst fears had, had come true? How are things going to be made right? That is what our passage today is going to address. And so let's first understand the context here. So Israel is in exile. They have been utterly defeated by the Babylonians. The temple, the most sacred and holy place where God himself rests, is in ruins. And most of the population is no longer in Israel. They are in Babylon as captives of war. How would you feel if you were an Israelite? Well, you'd probably feel like the Babylonian gods have won and Yahweh, our God, is defeated or absent? And the question that you would ask yourself as you sit with your newfound identity in slavery would be, has our God abandoned us? Does he even care? 
Has he forgotten about his covenant people? And if he hasn't forgotten about his covenant people, then how is he going to come and make things right? Now, be yourself in this moment. Don't we also have the same emotions and the same questions? We look around at the world and we know that it's not how it should be, it's not right. We continue to crawl out of a pandemic that seems to be stretching on for more than two years now. Russia started a needless war with Ukraine, displacing millions of innocent people. The world is not as it should be. And so you ask yourself, we ask ourselves, what is God up to? What is he doing? How is he going to respond to the mess that we've created? And our passage today has good news because Isaiah is going to tell us two things. He's going to tell us that God is going to come and make things right and that God is going to give himself to make things new. God is going to come himself and make things right and God is going to give himself and make things new. Verses one to four. God is coming to make things right. Our passage opens with a statement from God saying, behold my servant. And the obvious question is, well, who is the servant? And it's a, it's a hot debate among scholars as to who the servant is, uh, but it seems to be that the servant in Isaiah can be different things. So if you have been reading uh, Isaiah along with us, you'll, you'll know that in chapter 41, Isaiah mentions the servant as Israel, the people of God. And in other parts of Isaiah, it's, uh, it's Cy- uh, Cyrus of Persia, the, uh, the king who would actually liberate the Israels from their exile in Babylon. Uh, but there's also a third category, and this third category is some sort of coming royal messianic figure. And so we see that today in our passage as well in the other servant songs which are found in Isaiah 49, 50, 52, and 53. And so what's happening in this passage? Well, God is commissioning his servant, just as he commissioned prophets and kings before. Uh, Prophets and kings were empowered by the Spirit. They boldly spoke about matters of justice or injustice. We see Isaiah doing this throughout the book of Isaiah, calling out Israel for their failure to live up to uh, their calling. Uh, We also see that this servant, though, doesn't just do that. He brings forth justice to the nations. And that's not something a prophet does. That's something that a king does. It's a kingly activity, bringing justice to the nations. And so this servant who God upholds, the servant who is empowered by the Spirit, he's going to do something. He's going to make things right. In the passage it says he will bring justice. And so... Men and women, God doesn't leave us in our trials without any help. God doesn't give us just teachers and prophets and words. God, according to the promise of Isaiah, will himself come and enter into our mess and make things right. And so what what does that mean? What does it mean to make things right? What does it mean for Isaiah to say justice? I'm sure when we read justice in our 21st century modern-day thinking, a a lot of different things might come to mind. Um, Justice is a hot topic these days, isn't it, in our culture? Everyone wants the society to be more just. Everyone wants justice. So is that what justice means? Um, So we need to pause on our idea of what justice is, and we need to first stop and think, well, what did it mean to the Israelites? And so in this passage, the Hebrew word here that's translated 
to justice in English is mishpat. And mishpat has a more specific meaning than probably what we would define as justice or what we might find in our English dictionary. Mishpat specifically calls on those who have power, wealth, influence, and resources in society to use those things to raise up those who are disadvantaged. In other words, mishpat, justice, according to the Bible, is about making the problems of those who are disadvantaged our problems. And throughout the Old Testament, scholars have noticed that mishpat almost always refers to some combination of four groups of people who in the ancient Near Eastern culture of Israel in their day would be at a default, uh, at a disadvantage. And these are the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant. Let me give you one example. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 7, verse 8 to 10, it says, The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, true justice. Show kindness, mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. And so this group of four has been coined by scholars as the quartet of the vulnerable. And part of the reason why Israel is where they are, why they are no longer in the land, why they're in exile, is because they have neglected the quartet of the vulnerable. They've neglected those who are low in social standing or status, and to neglect these people is to deeply misunderstand the heart of God and who God is. See, God is a God who repeatedly chooses the marginalized. He repeatedly chooses those who don't have power. He repeatedly chooses those who are wretched. In the first book of the Bible, and most of our Bible actually, um, it was written at a time when the firstborn, the firstborn son specifically, would receive the wealth and estate from their family. And this was the norm, not just in Israelite society, but across the entire ancient Near East. The firstborn always gets the place of honor. And yet, when you read Genesis, one of the most predominant themes is that God continually chooses to work not through the eldest son, but actually through the second son, the one who would have no social power. Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over Reuben. God consistently shines the spotlight on the person the world would have put on the sidelines. And that's just the book of Genesis. We see God standing with Israel in their slavery, being oppressed by the mighty empire of Egypt. We see God choose David, the youngest and smallest of Jesse's sons, to be the king of Israel. When I was a kid growing up, I was the shortest in my class for a long time. Um, I grew up in Burlington. I was the only Asian kid in my class for a while. And uh, I just didn't have the genetic material to compete with my European classmates. And so I remember often getting picked last or second last, you know, in gym class or at recess. Uh, because when you're a kid picking the teams, right, you, you definitely don't want the short kid, right? The short kid is the one you, you pick last. Um, and here's the thing. If God was picking the teams, if God was the captain, he would pick the shortest kid first every time. He would pick the one who nobody wants and especially the one that nobody expects to be picked first. Now look at Jesus, the first person that he reveals himself to as the Messiah in the gospel accounts. Who is it? It's not the high priest. It's not the Sanhedrin. It's not the Pharisees. It's not the religious elites or teachers. It's not even the rich people in society. Nope. It's to a disgraced woman from a hated ethnic group. 
a Samaritan woman, literally the last person that you would expect. And this is consistent. Across all gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, it is always those who are outcasts, who are marginalized, who are oppressed. It's these people who connect to Jesus the most readily. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the entire cosmos, the one who can call the armies of heaven at a moment's notice, who Paul describes in Colossians chapter one as the firstborn of all creation. See, firstborn gets the honor. Firstborn of all creation. The one through whom all things were created on heaven and in earth. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This Jesus never uses his status to oppress or to further alienate those who the world has given up on. Look at our text, verse three. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. A reed is an extremely delicate plant, a bruised one nearly to the point of breaking. Jesus is so gentle and caring. He will not break the one who is already broken. He won't extinguish you when your life is more smoke than fire. In fact, he'll breathe life until the glowing embers of your life ignite into flame. There's a really beautiful story of how how this actually plays out in Jesus' ministry. John chapter eight, it's a pretty well-known story. The Pharisees find a woman caught in adultery and they bring her before Jesus and they say, well, according to Moses' law, we have to stone her. And uh, Jesus' response is he doodles in the sand. (laughs) And then he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone. And so when they heard this, they, they weren't happy about that. But they went away one by one, as it says, beginning with the older ones, until Jesus was left alone with this woman. And Jesus stood up and he said, woman, where are they? Has no one come to condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. See, Jesus, when he restores someone, he doesn't condemn them. He doesn't call them out. He doesn't further alienate them. Rather, he brings them in. He still confronts her sin, right? He still says, from now on, sin no more. But he doesn't do it in a way that's judgmental. He doesn't do it in a way that would oppress. He does it in a way that he invites them to come and be restored. And so this is the Jesus that we love and worship. He's gentle enough to restore you. And if you're a Christian, you may think you've done something or haven't done something that somehow disqualifies you from the grace of God. And I think the point of this is to say, no, Jesus is gentle enough to restore you, no matter what you've done. And if you're not a Christian, um, I don't know what you may have heard about Jesus or about the God that we worship as Christians and in the church. But I think this passage teaches us something that you probably won't get from the media, that Jesus is gentle enough to restore you. He will not condemn you. You can come to him as you are. And this is justice. This is the justice that Jesus brings. We see in Jesus quite literally how God identified with the poor and oppressed by himself becoming one. Jesus was born to a a poor family. For most of his ministry, he was homeless. He was the victim of a gross injustice, a sham of a trial. He died penniless, naked, and violently. See, Jesus knows not only what it's like to go up 
against a corrupt system and to be a victim of gross injustice, but also what it's like to be killed by it. In Matthew chapter 12, there's another story about Jesus, and he heals a man on the Sabbath. And once again, the Pharisees are not a big fan of this. And at this point in the story, Matthew tells us that they went out, they conspired against Jesus, how to destroy him. Now Jesus, being aware of this, what does he do? He doesn't engage them. In fact, he does the opposite of probably what we would do. He withdraws, healing many, and telling them not to make him known. And then Matthew quotes the first four verses of our passage, saying, in Jesus, these are fulfilled. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. See, Jesus could have called out the Pharisees right there, right? He could have had the showdown right there. But what does he do? He doesn't create a fuss. He withdraws. He knows his time will come. He knows his mission of bringing justice is not yet finished. The time isn't there yet. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. See, Jesus knew that the finish line was at the cross. At the cross, he finished the work of bringing justice, mishpat, into the world. On the cross, he says, it is finished, and he breathes his last. But it's not just those who are physically or socially marginalized that God aligns with. God looks deeper into the spiritual realm of oppression and poverty. See, in the eyes of God, you and I were poor, spiritually poor, spiritually powerless, alienated from God, slaves to sin. And yet God saved us by becoming oppressed for us. In our culture today, there's often those who are um, zealous for justice. They often become cruel or outright cancel those who they perceive to be oppressors. This happens on the right and left side of the spectrum, however you want to slice the pie. But there's a third option here. There's a third perspective that the church is uniquely equipped to give. See, as Christians, we confess that we too also participate in the oppression of others. We have not loved our neighbors as we ought to. And by failing to do so, we, we withhold the love and the dignity that they deserve. When we lie, we deprive people of the truth that they have a right to. In other words, in our sin, we become the oppressors. And yet we have been saved by grace nevertheless. The story that the God-man Jesus died for his enemies, that Jesus responded to violence not with violence, but with love and with forgiveness. If this is the story that anchors your life, if this is the story that you build your entire identity around, I want to ask you, how could it lead you to take up power and oppress others? See, if we use the story of the Bible to support an ideology of oppression, we are willfully ignoring the meaning of the cross. And it's only the gospel that gives the church the unique ability to administer justice without creating new oppressors. And this is the promise of Isaiah. This is the beauty of the gospel. God himself has come down amongst his oppressed and downtrodden people to make things right, to bring justice. But that leads to a question, a question that I had sitting in the movie theater. Well, how is God going to make things right? How is he going to fix this? And the answer is by giving himself to make all things new. See, God is going to give himself as the price to be paid to create a new covenant that will bring you and I and the rest of the world into full and final restoration. Verse 6 says, I will give you as a covenant. Notice the language there. Not to represent the covenant, 
not to administer the covenant as the covenant. The covenant, the new covenant, is not an agreement, it's a person. If we read the Bible through the lens of covenant, and if we understand covenant as on one level simply being the partnership between God and humanity, it becomes clear that despite humans continuing to fail uh, to uphold their side of the covenant, God doesn't give up on his people. In fact, he doubles down. And in Jesus, we find that God gives himself to be this new covenant. The ultimate fulfillment of the partnership between God and man both come together in Jesus Christ. Jesus takes on the mantle of the entire nation of Israel, doing what they couldn't do. He's the faithful Israelite who keeps the law completely. He fulfills this calling of the servant that we see in our passage to open the eyes of the blind, to free the prisoners from the dungeon. See, in Jesus, there's a completely new way of relating to God available to us, one where our spiritual blindness is healed, one where the chains that hold us captive to the powers of this world are destroyed. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way, new covenant is the means by which new creation occurs. Now, what do I mean by new creation? Let me give you some examples. Look how the gospel explodes into the world, into the nations in the years after Jesus' ministry. Just absolutely radically changed the world. No one in the Roman Empire was looking out for the quartet of the vulnerable, let me tell you that. And so the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, began to do what no one had ever considered to do before, to take care of the undesirable, to take care of the sick, to take care of the outcast. This is a new way of being human. This is one of the reasons why Christianity spread like wildfire in its earliest days, because the church was creating social systems that literally did not exist. Justin Martyr, an early Christian apologist, writes in the second century about the efforts of Christians in Rome. He says, they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit, and what is collected and deposited with the present who assists the orphans and the widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want and those who are in bonds, and the strangers sojourning among us, and in a word, takes care of all who are in need. You see the quartet of the vulnerable there. See, even the wealthy Christian in the second century knew that they had an obligation to help those in need. And this concept of caring for the sick and dying was a uniquely Christian conviction. In the ancient world, it was pretty common for plagues to strike, And uh, they struck Rome, they struck other ancient empires, and it was the Christians who stayed and took care of the sick, often themselves becoming sick, often themselves dying whilst looking after those who had already been abandoned by their friends and their families. We take it for granted that hospitals are an essential part of any just and compassionate society, and yet most people probably don't realize that all of the first hospitals were started by Christians. The concept of caring for the sick We get to own that as the church. It's amazing. Look at the composition of the church in Acts as the gospel moves out from Jerusalem into the world. People from all levels of society, all different ethnicities, dining at the same table. Jew, Gentile, slave, master, men and women. It's the kind of society that Caesar would have loved to create, but it's only possible with the power of the gospel. And so this continues to be our mission today, church, to bring healing and hope to a world that's gone wrong. And now I know the question you have at this point is, well, those are great stories, but 
We're no longer the church in the first century. So what do we do today? Two, two application points for us. First, behold the servant. This passage, the intent that Isaiah wants to tell us is to behold the servant. Behold Jesus Christ. See, whatever kind of work that we want to do as a church, we have to start by looking at Jesus. If we take our eyes off of the cross, if we take our eyes off Jesus, any work that we do is just building on a foundation of sand. So we need to behold the servant. Second, be sent. There's an amazing verse in John chapter 20. After Jesus' resurrection, he appears to the disciples and he says, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. In other words, whatever Jesus was to Israel, so the church must be to the world. And this is worth spending many, many hours meditating and thinking about. When we look at the entirety of Jesus' ministry, how he undermined the power structure of his day, both religious and political, how his teachings, on, what his teachings were like on what the kingdom of God is, who inherits the kingdom of God, what's the kingdom of God like, his mighty works of healing, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, loving your enemies, We need to take all of these things, thinking carefully about what that would have meant to Israel in their moment in history. And then with much wisdom and discernment from the Holy Spirit, we need to think about how we can continue to be that kind of light in our 21st century world today. See, the church's calling is still the same thing as it was uh, 2,000 years ago. Just as God worked in and through Jesus, he continues to work through his church today, bringing restoration and healing that the world desperately needs. That's what it means for us to be the body of Christ. We are the physical representation of Jesus in this world. And so we need to ask the Holy Spirit for a great deal of wisdom. And then we need to move into our city, into our neighborhoods, into our world, bringing mishpat, and doing this restorative gospel-centered work that God has invited us to participate in. I want to end with a quote from N.T. Wright once again. The world and we humans within it are in a mess, left for dead in the ditch. The secular world walks past on one side, hasn't got time to worry about people's problems because there's profit to be made and there's power to be grabbed. The modern religious world walks past on the other side, believing that this world doesn't matter because we're going to go somewhere else, probably soon. But the living God has come with healing and hope in Jesus Christ, has picked up the battered and dying world and has bound up its wounds and set it on the road to full health. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? To pick up this battered and dying world, to bind its wounds and to set it on the road to full health. This is our message today from Isaiah. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for this wonderful passage. I thank you that Jesus is the servant that we long for, the one who gives us the ability to administer true justice, the one who we need to fix our eyes on as we do the work that you've called us into as the church. God, would you convict us and work in our hearts by the power of your spirit, give us wisdom to know how we can best be a light in this ever darkening world. God, the the idea, the concept of justice is a hard one. It's one that's worth a lot of time and a lot of thinking and a lot of praying. And so would you help us, God, to consider 
how we can be a church that brings mishpat to the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we have some time for questions. <laughs> we have some time for questions and none have come in. No questions. Amazing. So I may, I may pull from my Hall of Fame questions that came to me like, <laughs> how can I find a godly man, Pastor Ryan, or do you think the Jays will win tonight? The, the uh, most relevant ser- sermon mm, questions. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, Ryan, very Thank much. You. That was a beautiful sermon. Um, let's take it some time now to um, pray, center ourselves, see how God is speaking to us and how we should respond. So take a moment now and do business with God.